talk to investors about gold and their eyes light up, they are absolutely mad for it. The intrinsic love affair with gold makes the investment story a little bit more straightforward. Ready to raise capital? It's time to get your dose of investment insights with the Investment Fix podcast. Brought to you by New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. Kia ora koutou. I'm Dylan Lawrence, General Manager of the Investment Team at New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. In today's episode of The Investment Fix, I'm with Will Barker, CEO and founder of cleantech company Mint Innovation. Mint recovers valuable metals from electronic waste. Also with us is David Beard, partner at New Zealand venture capital firm Movac. David was an early investor into Mint Innovation, has been on Mint's board for nearly three years. Welcome, Will. Welcome, David. Thanks, Dylan. Thank you. So let's start with you, Will. Can you give us a quick 101 on what Mint Innovation does and some insight into the scale of the opportunity, particularly when it comes to the amount of e-waste being produced around the world? Sure thing, Dylan. So we essentially have invented a new process for recovering valuable metals from challenging environments. And when we think of, for example, a circuit board out of a cell phone, out of a laptop, you've got precious metals, gold, palladium, those sorts of things floating around in a mixed matrix of a tonne of other much less valuable metals. So we've created a process for going in and grabbing the metals of interest and extracting them on a very, very low cost, scalable way. Through our journey, we've gone from test tube scale and through various funding rounds, we're now at commercial scale. So we're building our first commercial plant to recover the value from waste streams produced in Sydney. So two to 3,000 tonnes per annum of circuit board waste, recovering more than a kilo of gold and other precious metals on a daily basis. How big a problem is e-waste? Yes, yeah, huge. Globally, it is one of the biggest and most rapidly growing waste streams. But more importantly, it's incredibly toxic. There's a lot of junk in e-waste and three ways it ends up its life. If it goes into landfill, slowly degrades and often the toxic metals end up in waterways. A lot of it is processed properly, but typically countries don't have domestic capability. So it gets exported overseas, and typically going into developing nations. But a lot of it's exported illegally, where it goes to developing nations where it's destroyed or try to recover value in pretty basic and dangerous ways. David, Movec was an early investor into Mint Innovation, and you've been on the board for around about three years. So you've obviously got a pretty solid relationship with Will, but can you tell us how the two of you met and how you came across Mint Innovation? Mint is one of these companies that was sitting inside Level 2 Incubator, and Will was, at that time, general manager, or I don't quite know what your title was there. Peripherally involved. Yeah, peripherally involved. And Level 2 is a great incubator with a lot of pedigree. It's got Lanza Tech in there, Avatana, Rocket Lab were in there for a time being. It's like a hard tech paradise in there to some extent. So I met up with Will and then he told me about Mint and I thought it was a fantastic company. The problem we had was with our previous fund, Fund 4, it was a more of a later stage fund. And Will was just looking at a bit more early stage pre-revenue funding. I love the company and Will saying, I'd love for you to invest, but it couldn't happen. Eventually, we came to the point that we would try and do the funding outside of Fund 4 mandate. And we ended up going around all our LPs who were so excited by all this that we got enough money together on a Series A to lead the round. And I was absolutely delighted. Delighted because companies like this deserve to be supported, but also delighted that we could get people out of mandate and out of our normal LP fund cycle and find the money to support these companies going forward. 
I think that was the initial bond that led us together, which is let's get this company money and we'll sort of try and work it all out a little bit later once they've got into their demo scale. Okay, so I want to look at the importance of getting your value proposition right in the deep tech industry. But first, Will, could you just explain to us what is deep tech? It's typically an R&D intensive technology development, often coming from the traditional sciences, chemistry, biology, to a less extent physics, or strongly engineering. There's typically an opportunity to file patents from it, and the tech piece is done by your technical team. I'm originally a chemist, so that's where I start this journey, is start with chemistry and then build the commercial side from there. Gotcha. So nailing your value proposition is always key, but particularly in deep tech. How do you think you got it right with Mint? It's always challenging in deep tech, but particularly clean tech. Clean tech over the years has been seen to be a bit of a philanthropic throwing good money after bad. So when we founded Mint, we spent a lot of time trying to work out how this is actually going to work and think about financial returns and doing good for the world. My background was with another clean tech company and recognized that any waste of value play is going to be fraught with challenges around a waste stream having a carbon and energy value and a product stream having a relatively low value. So what we tried to do at Mint is really start at the top of the value chain, try and find a waste stream that was lower value and really try and drive that differential between the waste and the value stream. Starting at the top of the value chain, you're looking at precious metals like gold. And if you start with that sort of principle, then it's actually quite difficult to not make money out of that. So we built a business model that we tested across various different waste streams. Circuit boards floated to the surface, and we started scaling that process. Gold and precious metal is really interesting. We talk to investors about gold, and their eyes light up. They are absolutely mad for it. They understand it. The intrinsic love affair with gold makes the investment story a little bit more straightforward. Anything to add to that, David? How was Will's initial pitch to you? Did it involve gold? It did involve gold. It was a small amount in a small container. When the Series B came along, I think he had a medallion-sized piece of gold which had come out of the labs. And he's right, you should have seen the salivation in the investor's head from that. So there's possibly something about uh, the gold printing machine that is the utopic investor profile. I think the clear thing from our perspective in terms of value prop was really laser targeted on what is your waste stream, what products are you going to produce from it, how is it commercially going to happen, where are you going to sell it, and Mint really nailed all those things. If your value prop is a bit too woolly, it's really hard for an investor to get their head around what the commercial path is, and a lot of people lose sight of that. The commercial path is really critical in these early stage deep tech companies. I really like that. And just building on that, Movac, you guys describe yourself as a full life cycle technology investor. What is it you're exactly looking for in a company? And what did you see in Mint Innovation that attracted you to invest? Yeah, especially at the early stage, we put it down to four or five things. We call it Team, TAM, Moat, and Commercial Path. TAM, which is the total addressable market, how big is this opportunity? Because there's huge amounts of risk, especially in hard tech. It tends to be a little bit of hero zero. There's a lot of good technologies which just don't make it through that whole growth stage Go from there. The team is critical for us because what is being pitched at the point when we look at it is probably not going to be the end product or its commercial path is going to be different. So it's really important that you've got a team around who understand commercialities and sensitivities and are able to adjust their proposition going forward. And the last thing for us is really around moat, which is how defensible can this be? And it's not necessarily IP, although that's one form of moat. It's really defensibility. 
if you're going to go through all the hard yards and get over the line where you can get this product out in a commercial state, you don't want somebody coming through and just copying what you've done and you've lost all your momentum and all the investment that you've actually put into that company over quite a number of years. Those are the critical aspects that we look at. You touched on risk and there's always a high level of perceived risk in a business or in a startup, but particularly so in deep tech. How did you assess the risk in this business? We talk about with the company, is there path ahead? Are these what I call circular problems versus linear problems? Research is a circular problem. You go forward and if you get to a dead end, you've got to start again. So whatever effort or resources and money you spend on it, you may not get the full benefit of that if you've got to take off a different branch and head into a different end. Linear problems, I'd put more around the development side of things. Do I know that incrementally, if I put enough time and enough money, I may have a few speed bumps here and there, but I'll eventually get to the end and I can see that line of sight using my current technology path. I think that's a really critical thing. And what Willard convinced us in Mint is at the lab scale that he'd done most of the R&D and what we had was more linear problems. I think the other part, which was around the commercialization part, which was really critical for us, was who's going to buy your product is one of the key parts of commercialization. And the great thing about gold is it doesn't have a sales channel. You don't have to find a customer to actually sell your product to. You take it to the local mint <laughs> or metals exchange and they weigh it and they pay you it. So to some extent, I think this is a unique business from us as an investor. Usually one half of your business, you're always worried about trying to find product market fit. Is the customer demand there? How are you going to sell into it? How do you scale from all that? From a perspective of an investor, that's a really large part of the business where there's uncertainty and doubt is actually nailed because once you can produce gold, you found the opportunity. The last part we look at is actually really around the risk reward and what's the capital strategy. Too often you find that if you're going to build a plant out in production, some of these plants cost hundreds of millions of dollars and they're producing maybe 20, 30, 40 million dollars worth of revenue. And the payback period of that, plus also add on to the risk, makes it borderline as to whether it's something we would want to invest in. So for us, it's around say, if it takes a reasonably small draw of capital to produce a reasonably simple production plant in which you can start earning revenue and you can understand that path simply, then that again is very attractive to us. Previous guests on the investment fix, they've described the investor-investee relationship as a marriage. How important for both of you is it to find the right partner? <laughs> that's a really interesting question. I've never considered a marriage before, but uh, <laughs> certainly... Oh, certainly. well, that's not what you said. <laughs> <laughs> Previously, I was with another deep tech startup company and it kind of went through that same growth trajectory. So I had strong networks with investors and in particular overseas investors in the American market. And it wasn't a slippery slope raising offshore money that led to that company moving offshore, but it certainly contributed to it. So when we started the, the Mint journey, I was really keen to look for onshore money, New Zealand money if possible. But at the same time, if you're looking in New Zealand, you've got to look best in class. And when the opportunity with Novak arose, it was a real no-brainer for us. Novak have been best in class through the last 10, probably 15 years. So from that perspective, choosing which PC firm to line up with was a no-brainer. Dave views the world similarly to me. It's about having fun as well as working hard. From that perspective, we go on great. I certainly wouldn't want to be married to Dave, but enjoying the journey with Dave is a good way to spend my day. And if we're going to 
torture that analogy. I would say it's like an arranged marriage where you don't quite know who your partner is. You have a couple of conversations and then you're wedded. And to absolutely torture it to death, it's possibly an arranged marriage in reverse where your honeymoon comes at the end when everything's successful. But often at the beginning, there can be tensions. You're trying to understand each other. Hopefully you're dealing with two strong individuals who have their own sets of thoughts around how this marriage is going to work. And you have to build trust. You have to build that relationship. You have to build respect and all those things. But they don't come at the beginning. They're earned as they go through in the first few years. To some extent, it's more of an arranged marriage. No nice. offense, Will, of course. <laughs> and so I understand, David, you've recently stepped down after three years of being Mint's chairperson. Will, can you tell us a bit about your new chairperson? We appointed Catherine Drayton as chairperson. Dave was chairperson following Series A. But as we progressed past our Series B round, we wanted to grow up a little bit. Dave's great, but he's an average chairperson for a Series B company. So, uh, yeah, we've moved on to bigger and better things. Catherine, amongst other things, is ex-chairperson of Becca. She's one of the uh, super fun guardians and chairperson of Christchurch Airport. So a real chairperson. Oh, what a fantastic appointment. And what are you doing with David? We try and keep him back in his box now. No, no, he's still on the board. Dave has a huge amount of value on the board for us. So it's great to have a representative from Hoback, but particularly Dave, he's extremely well aligned with my views on building this company. It, we try and focus on strategy now, don't we, Will? Whereas, as Will says, my chairpersoning skills is basic governance and strategy, whereas we got to the stage on Series B where we needed full governance as well as strategy. So it's a great appointment. I want to jump now to your latest funding round. In December 2020, you raised around $20 million in funding led by Movac. Now, raising this much in a Series B in New Zealand is a big deal. So how did it all come together? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a big deal. And Movac joined us in the Series A round. That was $5 million raised back end of 2018. Post-Series A, we were going through the growth journey. We're building a demonstration facility here in East Tamaki, just scaling up for what the next part of the journey is going to look like. Dave and I work to work out what that next funding round needs to look like, and it's in the order of 15 to $20 million. And you kind of recognize right there that 15 to $20 million is challenging in New Zealand, or it certainly was in 2019, 2020. So we did start looking offshore and had plenty of interest offshore. But as we're going through that process, Dave and the Movac team were putting the finishing touches to their Fund 5. And it became an option to start thinking about how Movac might lead the round. Movac starts getting more and more interested in it, and the rest is history. It's still one of the biggest raises in the clean tech space in New Zealand. I was extremely fortunate. If I can have a New Zealand investor support this journey, it makes my job a lot easier. So from my end, it was a no-brainer again. Now, David, Movac led the round, but other VCs also invested alongside. To the uninitiated listening out there, what does leading around versus following around mean? And how does that play out in practice? Leading around means that you'll put the term sheet to the company. And effectively, with the company, you're putting an undertaking to find other investors. And that adds pressure onto you as the lead investor because you're also expected to do the bulk of the due diligence. Will and I work together to work out two or three key things. Who else? should we have in the round and why and strategically what makes sense from that perspective and then what do they need to get up to speed so that we can convince them that they want to invest a lot of the new investors that come in on especially these rounds they're coming in pretty cold so how do you keep them warm how do you bring them up to date? and taking on that responsibility as much as the company itself 
And so you become a facilitator as well as the lead investor and you drive the best outcome, not only for the round, but for the company going forward. Well, you've got Movac with a term sheet sitting in front of you. What were you looking for in the follow-on partners as well? What role do you play in finding those follow-on investors? We've obviously got existing investors who have preemptive rights. We're looking to work out lead investor, preemptive rights, and what's left. And the what's left is the first task, if you like. What's the size of the investment? What scale of investment can we go out and start enticing people in with? In our case, it ended up about 25 to 30% of the round. Not a huge chunk that we're able to go out and seek, but what we're really looking for there is people who are into potentially a long journey deep tech level of risk. We've already de-risked the technology, but you know we've got to build some pretty substantial plants this time. We've developed a business model that's relatively capital light from a clean tech perspective, but it's not for the faint-hearted. We're looking for investors that have been on that journey before. And the deep pocket side of things is also quite helpful. Movax backing us and ready to dig into their pockets as we scale, potentially for future funding rounds or whatever the business model looks like. And it would be beneficial for us and for them to have somebody alongside who also has deep pockets. Our existing investors have typically come from the angel space, so a limited capability to dig really deep into those pockets. So having somebody who's done that before and has a larger fund. It's actually we brought Blackbird in at that point. They're almost Australia's version of Movac. They're best in class. We're deploying in Australia. They get the business model. They like the team and they wanted to work with Movac. So it all worked out pretty well for us. So this was a Series B. From your perspective, David, how much do investors need to know about a company at each funding stage? Do you approach different funding stages differently, i.e. the way you invest in a Series A? Is it any different to the way you invest in a Series B? Yes, quite considerably different. And if we take it through, let's just call it C, Series A, Series B. C can be a bunch of things now going from first money through to maybe there might be two or three rounds in that. But the initial stage is more around, as we talked about, team, TAM, moat, and commercialization path. You don't know a lot of information around how the product demand side is going to work, but working more around the risk profile and the TAM. When you get to Series A, you want a lot more proof around customer demand, and that comes into that equation as well. Basically, either customer demand, product market fit, or some form of traction because when you get into Series A, it's no longer good enough to have a management team or a founders come to you and say, we've got the best thing since sliced bread. It just doesn't cut it. What you really want to see is interaction with industry and get some sort of pull attraction working there. When you're doing a Series B, you're talking about robustness, repeatability, predictability, scale. You know, it's got to have the scaling growth factors there. And so if we took it our initial one around Series A and put that on Mint, the customer demand, as we said, was a bit obvious because you're producing gold and you can sell it. The traction really was around, hey, can you produce these things, a, a plant? Does it make sense? Is it cost effective if you produce one plant? What's your ROI on capital and things like that? Series B was more around, okay, who's going to supply you with the raw materials? How long will it take to set up a plant? What's the other plants are you going to do? What are all the cities that it's going to work in? What's the regulatory issues around each of these cities and each of these countries? How long will it take to get all those? What's the price of gold? How is it going to fluctuate? So the complexity around the growth and scaling factors is where our attention starts going as you get further down into the high rounds. Fascinating. Well, from your perspective, how did your pitch shift? If you think back to your Series A pitch, 
to your Series B. Did you change your approach? Did you change your messaging? Talk to us a bit about that. The approach has to change and it speaks to what Dave's just talked about. If you start in the seed phase, it's always about technology and how much you've de-risked it. And to a certain extent, Series A is the same. A lot of the research that we've done is that desk-based research and we've got great technology and now we've got the TAM side of things is what we believe is possible. Whereas Series B, you've really got to have delved in there, spoken to the customer, got that voice to the customer and making sure that you've validated that. And so our pitch around that side of things had to be really, really shored up. At the time, we were lucky to have alongside us some pretty strong partners from around the world, and that validates the path to the market as well. Also, well, the biggest change really is Series A was how does a plant work and what's the economics of that? Series B was how does 100 plants work? Yeah, exactly. If you're going to crystallise it in that sort of scaling model from there, and that's where we probably spent a fair part of the year prior, which is sort of saying, how does this roll out? What's the business models to roll out to 100 plants or 1,000 plants? Is it doable? How we do it? And start selling that vision. That's the Series B vision. The Series A vision is more around, hey, we can get this plant working economically, and this is the sort of ROI we can get on our plant. It's a big step up in vision, really. Awesome. Talking about rounds, I'm really interested to just explore the role or the dynamic between you two between rounds. What is your engagement will with David between rounds? And is there any role of the existing investors in helping set up the next round? Oh, from my end, absolutely. Dave has been on the board for the duration since their Series A investments. And certainly through that board participation, we are absolutely gearing up for the next round from pretty much the day we close the money. But we also take a step backwards outside the board relationship and working out from a founder perspective, what does my journey look like outside the board setting with Spitball, what a truly spectacular vision could look like, and thinking about the types of investors we want to involve in it. So, yeah, absolutely. Dave is yeah, pretty fundamentally involved in that. And within a company like Mint, we are very, very strong on technical. We've got a lot of scientists, engineers who are building the company. From a business perspective, from a commercial perspective, it's pretty much me. So having that opportunity to spend time outside the company, test some of my hypotheses, that sort of thing is really valuable. And from my perspective, once you've got the round closed, you've got effectively the budget to start hiring the people to do the plan for that round. Start having the conversations with the founders and some of the other board members around what the company needs to look like for its next round. What does grow mean and how will it be perceived? If we're in the VC world, we get a broader understanding of what growth can actually mean. And so how do you apply that to this individual company? Everybody is pitching a little bit in advance of who they are at this point in time. But I think our job as the investor is to lift the sights even a little bit further up and say, what does this company look like in 18 months or 24 months time? And where do we need to be sort of shining a light on the things that we need to be doing so that in that 12, 24 months, we start to look like the company that, say, in this case, a Series C investment would start looking at. And that's maybe going across different product channels, starting to say, look, if we've got well-beating technology, how does that apply to different scenarios? And how do we maximize the growth and value potential of this company going forward from there? That's a fantastic point. We say New Zealand tech companies are born to be global from day one. Well, what does Series B enable you to do and where are you looking to take it in the next 18, 24 months? Series B was raised to build plants and to start at that exponential growth phase into the commercial realisation of these plants. 
in the first instance, we're building a plant in Australia. Uh, New Zealand is an interesting market, although the small population, a city of one million, Auckland, pales into significance against some of the cities around the world. So Sydney is a much more obvious place for us to prototype the commercial plant. And from there, we'll look to building further plants around the world. And we do a slight shift in business model as we start to grow, just to enable that kind of exponential growth. But plant number one in Sydney is all about this is what we can do and this is the money that we can make from it. We will look to raise more money in the future, but part of the growth story now is how do we really maximise the opportunity here? We recognise we've got a great low-carbon technology. We really very, very strong circular economy proposition, and it essentially does solve a lot of problems in a lot of local geographies. The challenge to rolling out in lots of cities, particularly over a relatively short time frame, is the logistics of doing that. That's how we need to scale from here is get the prototype running and then work out the business model, the operation model for building five plants at a time, 10 plants at a time, 20 plants at a time. There's a lot more work that needs to be done and some more money that will need to be spent. From our point of view, the thing that really attracts us, it is city scale. So you don't transport all this e-waste around the place. And if you can get a city scale plant producing somewhere between 20, maybe $40 million of revenue a year, multiply that by the number of cities and it doesn't take too long before you can add the mass up and say actually this is a significant business likewise with will we're really excited to see the first production plant in the stage of being built now in sydney it's going to be great hey now actually this is a great time to quickly mention an awesome resource for kiwi businesses who are about to start their own funding journey invested is a free online tool from the nzt investment team and it offers really practical advice tips and information about preparing to raise capital. So if you want to make sure you're totally ready to talk to investors, check out www.invested.co.nz. David, growing a deep tech company is quite different than a SaaS company, in particular the way you scale it. As an investor, how do you approach it differently? And is there a different approach to due diligence when it comes to deep tech? In our view, they're quite different. I think the key difference is with a SaaS company, you've got an opportunity for early revenue stream and that revenue stream grows as the company grows. And to some extent, you can focus on revenue as being your main indicator as to what a good SaaS company is compared to a mediocre one. You don't have that guiding North Star within deep tech companies. So it's really about looking at whether it solves an absolute problem and we call it, is this a nice to have or a must have? To some extent, I've talked about it before, which is the TAM and the moat. How big is this opportunity and how defensible can this be? And making sure that if it were to succeed, it can actually exceed and create a significant reward because the risks are significant. And if it does succeed, then you're not going to have somebody coming in a year later copying you. It's really about understanding those dynamics and the commercialization path, which is we accept that we're not going to get early revenue, but when can we expect revenue? How much capital are we likely to expend trying to get that revenue if it's big enough and the rewards are there and that really solves a great problem, then it's something we should consider. Perfect. I just want to finish with some advice. Well, I want to get some advice. I thought um, you were going to give us some yeah. advice. I was hoping for that. You're a smart cookie, Dylan. Always open for some advice, please. No, I'm talking to the masters here. So, Will, you've spent over 15 years in the clean tech space. Any advice for founders or Kiwi companies looking to enter 
Yeah, it's a really tough space. The biggest challenge is that most clean tech, particularly where you're producing a low-value material or low-value commodity, really very difficult to work out a model where you can monetize that. So thinking about your business model, thinking about how you're going to monetize the opportunity early on and de-risking that to the extent you can is absolutely critical. I've done that myself, mainly because I'm a risk-averse entrepreneur. I like to de-risk to the extent I can. So I did that very, very early on, but it's really paid us dividends as we've grown through those rounds. Take the risk out early on. Awesome. I'd like one piece of advice to founders that they should get right when they're looking to raise capital? Sure. I think it's this get the commercial pathway, pay as much attention to that as you can. What I find is people love to tell you about the science or the technology of what their new offering is, almost as if that's going to sell itself and be a successful business because you've got the product side sorted out. Most companies I've seen that have struggled effectively have not spent the time and the detail and customer calls to understand exactly how your technology may actually cross over and become something that people want to buy. And it's also, to some extent, not be woolly around what your proposition is. In software, SaaS, for instance, you can afford to develop your product as the customer reinforces, they buy more of this and you can become more SME-focused or more enterprise-focused. You've got this ability to adapt and learn adapt and learn doesn't really apply too well within hard tech and deep tech companies. So again, if you focus on the commercial imperative, and then there's a value prop around the commercial imperative for one of those, drive forward with that and stay focused. Very nice. Will, what about you? My experience is from that deep tech, clean tech space, and it's a long journey. It's always going to be a lot more expensive than you believe it's going to be, and it's going to be probably longer than you believe it's going to be. You need to get your commercials right early on, because if you're developing a model that relies on incentives, it relies on selling byproducts for premiums, if your business model requires other people to change their behavior in order for you to make money, you're pushing the proverbial uphill from day one, and that's going to be a really, really challenging sell. So commercial model, it's got to stack up really well from day one. And if that's the case, just double your assumptions on runway and cash burn and you should be okay. (laughs) Look, thanks guys. That was such great insight into the relationship between an investor and an investee when it comes to venture capital. You've given us a fascinating look at the different challenges you face when growing a deep tech company versus a SaaS one. And I really enjoyed the discussion we had around the differences in approach between rounds of capital raising. It's also great to see Mint Innovation going from strength to strength and fantastic to see such a strong team behind it. So thanks again, Will and David, for your time today. And we look forward to hearing so much more from Mint in the future. That was your investment fix from NZTE. For a bigger financial fix, head to investnewzealand.nz.